All right, everybody. Welcome to the Compliance Roundtable on the Compliance Guy. As always, I'm your host, Sean Weiss, and I am joined by two of my favorite people, Stephanie Howard and Paul Spencer from the Auditing and Compliance team at Doctors Management. So you may be wondering why the audio sounds a little bit different tonight and why my background is that of a room. And that would be because I'm in a hotel room. This is how dedicated I am to all of you. I am actually here in Detroit getting ready for a criminal trial tomorrow um, at the um, well, it doesn't matter what the name of the building is because I can't remember it anyways. But I'm going to a federal building tomorrow, and I am working on a uh, a very large uh, criminal case uh, tied to pain management and to some other fun stuff going on. So hopefully in the next uh, couple of weeks, I'll be able to bring the attorney uh, onto the program. We can talk all about the case. We can talk about the outcome of the case. Uh, your thoughts and prayers are very much appreciated. Anytime I have to go into a courtroom and I have to sit on that uh, stand uh, and be cross-examined by the United States government. So I'll take all of your thoughts and prayers. Uh, and with that said, let's go ahead and kick this thing into high gear. Um, we're missing Scott Kraft tonight, but Scott is taking care of some client needs. So you get the other two of the pen. All right, Paul, I want to go ahead and start with you. Um, obviously, there's some things going on in the world of risk adjustment. And if, and if I'm not mistaken, you were just engaged in working on a risk adjustment audit. So let me go ahead and turn the floor over to you. And uh, why don't you take it away? Okay. Well, first, I'd like to practice uh, my thoughts for today with uh, with just a standard response for all offices, because I get this question a lot. And the question is, you know, do I have to respond to a documentation request from a risk adjustment auditor? And uh, it, it, my answer is always a blanket yes. Uh, the thing that complicates that response is the fact that most of the Medicare Part C carriers are using a third party to select those records for audit under a risk adjustment audit. So the big problem that we have is that uh, you'll get a letter saying, you know, this is a risk adjustment audit and we want to see these particular patients and it's coming from a third party and they're like, well, who is this? It's not somebody, it's not something from a law firm. It's not coming directly from the car carrier. It's a third party. Who are they? Well, they're just, uh, they're a tool to be utilized. So the first thing I would tell you is respond. Now, we talk about, I want to talk about just how much can be requested by a Medicare Part C carrier. I had a conversation earlier today, and this is why this topic is on foremost on my mind today. A client uh, came to me and uh, they talked about, uh, I believe it was Aetna as the Medicare 
administrative care or, Med or the Medicare Part C plan for their area. And Aetna, other th rather than asking for blanket information once a year, what Aetna is doing is they're getting information from this practice every quarter. And the problem that they're having is that the third-party requester doesn't care about the administrative hassle that their information is causing because they get paid per record based on what they retrieve and what they send back to the carrier. So they really don't care about the administrative hassle that's put on a practice. And the other problem is that they're reaching out to Aetna. They're trying to find a person within the Aetna offices to address this. And of course, you end up in the uh, wonderful uh, merry-go-round uh, of customer service tag where nobody specific is being answered. In this particular case, this practice has been asked to retrieve 227 patient records for a two-year period in 14 days. Uh, now, even though they charge a flat fee per chart, there's absolutely no way that this particular practice can respond to something that is that large in that short a period of time. So what are their options? And I'm going to run this by Sean in real time because we haven't talked about this yet. My option to them was not to contact the person who was uh, requesting the records or the third party company that's requesting the records. And we already know that contacting Aetna, the Medicare Part C carrier, is useless. My recommendation to this particular practice was jump the line, go to the people who are handling the money, and that is Medicare itself. You know, contact them, let them know what the administrative hassle is from this particular carrier and how these needs simply cannot be met. Uh, and we have seen over a period of 10 years, at least I have, when the OIG records come out of a risk adjustment audit that's put forward on a carrier, I have yet to see a carrier audit in the risk adjustment space that's put forward by the OIG that uh, clearly states that the risk that is being claimed by that Medicare Part C adjuster or that Medicare Part C carrier matches the intensity of the services that they are providing to those patients. So we have a long established history of over-reporting of uh, acuity by the Part C carriers. So their response to that is just request more records. And that can't be the response when you're a, a practice who has all of the other needs for your patients that you need to satisfy in a day, and suddenly you're being asked to take on an enormous administrative burden on behalf of a carrier just so they can get more money in their pocket to prove that their patients are sicker than somebody else. Go to the source. Go to the people who are paying the checks, and that would be Medicare, and tell them, this is what this carrier is doing, and this is not consistent with what risk adjustment should be. Uh, you know, they're, you know, they're putting the burden on the practices and it's an undue burden. Yeah, so I would I would absolutely agree with you. I think the thing that anyone who's dealing with a similar situation should think about is how are you actually going to 
engage with Medicare. My recommendation would be to put it in writing. Um, picking up the phone, getting somebody at your Mac who seems like they're listening to you and you may hear a in the background as if they were typing something is probably shopping for something and they're going, uh-huh, okay, yeah, uh-huh. And most likely you're never going to hear anything about it. But if you put it into writing and you send them something in writing, CMS is obligated to respond to you in writing. Um, to request an, ex an exorbitant amount of records to the number that you uh, indicated, Paul, and they have 15 days in which to respond to the request is outside of CMS's standard guidelines. Typically, you have anywhere from 30 to 45 days. Now, remember, by statute, if it's a free payment rev uh, uh, review, um, there are no extensions granted uh, by statute. There, there is no extension yeah. granted. If it is a post-payment review, then it's at the discretion of the contractor and or the MAC themselves in that jurisdiction as to whether or not they're going to grant um, an extension to deliver. I think a couple of things come into mind, right? Um, we still have a lot of practices that have not recovered from the COVID pandemic where they're still short staffed. They're working on skeleton crews. Um, we're seeing an influx of COVID cases again. Thank God they're nothing more than a common cold at this point for 99.9% .9 of the people out there, but it's still something that's causing people to be out of work. It's creating headaches and hassles for us. But if a practice truly cannot comply with the request of, you know, uh, with the request that has been uh, placed upon them, then they have every right to request an extension for these services. And I think that would be the advice that I would give. Yeah. Put it and into writing. I would call them and I would say, there's no way we can comply with the request for 200 and some odd medical records in 15 days. It's not even in accordance with chapter three of the Medicare program integrity manual for additional documentation requests. I don't know if I know it off the top of my head. It may be like 3.24 or something like that, but I know it's chapter three because I actually did a daily dose on it last week um, for ADRs. Mm -hmm. um, so call, you know, put it on the record and then follow up in writing to make sure yeah. that you're being heard. Um, but you know, these risk adjustment audits to your point, they're getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, Stephanie, you and I through one of our clients, um, I swear it's almost on a daily basis. We see two, three, four of these ADR requests coming in for an HCC review. So any anything you want to add on top of that, uh, Stephanie? Yeah, just I, these are just thoughts and speculations. So this is not anything known. But um, when you're saying this, Paul, it's interesting to me because when I work with providers and go in and do education sessions and things like that on risk adjustment, I've actually had some family practitioners get pretty upset as if the burden of um, supporting these conditions are on their shoulders as opposed to also being spread out 
with the specialist. So yes, the specialist documentation counts as well, but I just wonder what is driving this payer to do this at that level. The other thing I'm wondering too, and I did not go back and look at this at all, but I saw something come out and it was referring to whether or not telehealth services can be used for risk adjustment if video was not a part of the encounter. And I thought I saw something at one point come out and say that video was not necessary, but that was way after the fact. So now we've gone years throughout the pandemic. So I never went back to see if that, if that was the case or to dig any further into that right now. I haven't had to work on that at all. But um, I just wonder if to some extent that's driving the commercial or the, you know, managed Medicare plans to push in a certain way, kind of like they're making up for lost time. Because I'm sure there are a lot of encounters out there too that they couldn't use because we didn't have that guidance before regarding video. That's a really well, good point. Yeah, I'll add this too. I mean, we have to remember that as of January 1st, 2021, we're looking at the assessment plan for the driver of that level of service. and. When we look at that assessment plan, we're making a determination as to what conditions during that visit were meaningfully assessed. I mean, it's not it's not enough to just have a uh, you know a a list of conditions or the act what we call the active problem list in some EMRs that you know when I look at it, seventy five percent of them can't possibly be active. It's like how long do you have a sprained ankle and so on and so forth. Um, but here's another thing to think about, and this is something that I've tried to push the practices before, only because the practices that I know that have done it uh, have had great success. If you are in an area and you are of a specialty, and this talk goes to the family practice and primary care settings that uh, Stephanie alluded to, if you're in an area that has a high Medicare Part C population, and you're a primary health care provider, you may want to think about, uh, if you haven't already, going to a risk-based model with your Medicare Part C carrier. So there, and it does require a lot of moving parts within your practice. Uh, it requires uh, particular attention to detail to capture all of those meaningfully assessed conditions uh, uh, ahead of time and to build them out correctly. But if you have the moving parts within your practice, I know of some practices around this country who have had tremendous uh, you know, uh, success with a risk-based model with Medicare Part C uh, carriers. And uh, you know, the dollar amounts, I've done some presentations on this just illustrating how uh, you know, how salutary these practices become. Uh, but it's certainly something you want to consider if you have that high Medicare Part C population and if you are a primary care provider. Yeah, I think I, I, I would agree with you 100% on that, Paul. I think at the end of the day, the, the message that we're trying to send out to our listeners is that, you know, these HCC audits, you can't ignore them. They're being performed on behalf of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services through a contractor. If you feel that the request is um, unreasonable, 
then you need to contact the MAC, do it through a phone call first, and then follow up in writing to confirm that, you know, it, it, it's, it's an undue burden on the practice. Uh, you can't comply with the request at the time, you know, for the time frame for turnaround of medical records in accordance with Chapter 3 of the Program Integrity Manual. But again, if it's a prepayment review, no extension is going to be granted. If it's a postpayment review, they will grant you an extension at their discretion. So, yeah, great conversation. Really, really good stuff. And, 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 and I think this is just the tip of the iceberg with the HCCs. I think they're going to become more prevalent as the um, payment models for reimbursement are more structured towards the quality in the outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> because yeah. we're, we're seeing more social determinants of health playing a role in all of this stuff. So uh, I, I think HCCs are going to be um, part of the new era of the new landscape of healthcare. So yeah, yeah great topic, Paul. I'm glad yeah. you uh, brought yeah. that to us. You know, when it comes to ICD-10 and just the size, the sheer size of the clinical modification in the United States and how that's begun to be used, I said this before ICD-10 was rolled out. If there was not an actuarial reason for it to be that big, it would not be that big. And that's what we're dealing with. It's like if we see a patient population in zip code X uh, that has diagnosis Y, guess who's going to uh, have uh, higher insurance premiums? Guess who's going to be uh, driven to have better outcomes as the providers in that area? Uh, so that's that's where we're headed. Uh, you know, the the table's been set and the administrative burden is now being turned on the practices and it's being turned in the wrong place. Yeah, very well said. All right, let's move on. Stephanie, um, so every time I feel like we're getting away from it, we get sucked back in. Incident two and split shared services. So today we're not gonna talk about incident two, thank goodness. But we are going to talk about the split shared services, right? Because the split shared services are going to play a significant role in determining compensation for providers in 2023 because of the way that the guidelines are structured for CMS um, with respect to um, these split shared services for hospitals. So, why don't I go ahead and um, mute myself and let, let's go ahead and hear what's going on in your world. Okay. So it was interesting. I recently finished up an audit and very quickly found that the client was not supporting split shared under the 2022 guidelines. So basically what was happening is they had their typical macro statement set up like they would prior to 2022. And you know, when talking through this with them, I was talking with the administrative team about um, staffing, how the workflow is set up, knowing that typically mid-level providers, nurse practitioners, PAs are hired to alleviate some of the workload from the physicians in the hospitals. So in talking with them, they made it very clear that the physician saw the patients and was actually directing all of the management. So I brought up a 
copy of the note and I said, okay, let's look through the statement so you can see what I'm talking about here. And in this statement, it was referring to the fact that the physician saw the patient, which that's all well and good. But then the rest of it was saying that they agreed with the history and exam and the medical decision-making performed by the NP. So right there, their entire statement, all it said about the physician was that they saw the patient, could not see who had the larger, well, they claim the physician had the larger portion. I could not see that. So in talking through that and all of their current issues needing to make changes to their current documentation, it led into the conversation about next year. And, you know, for them, it's going to be pretty damning for their practice because what they basically do is they staff in hospitals. And currently, when they think ahead, they, they pretty much said to me on the call, they felt like they're just going to have to shut the practice down because I believe they're staffing around five hospitals and the hospitals are requiring physicians to go in and see the patients when an NP sees the patient. So they're dealing with, you know, whatever's happening as far as the administration goes at the hospital. It's it's not their own organization. It certainly doesn't fit their workflow. And they for sure, you know, the physicians don't spend the majority of the time because they they can't. They physically could not see patients that way with the requirement of their hospital. Um, they did say that sometimes the hospitals don't require every day that a physician see the patient. But I do believe that it is, um, I want to say at least maybe every three days that that they're seen by a physician. So, you know, it's one of those things where we can only go so far to help from the documentation and coding side, but now it's really a question of, does the state require physicians to see the patient every day in the hospital? Are there any kind of hospital regulations? I've never heard of that before. So then, you know, that needs to be quite a large conversation with that hospital administration to even see if they can continue those services next year. And that's a large, this, this particular one is in the behavioral health area, which I feel like has already been hit. Um, you know, just in general, I feel it here locally in my area, and we hear about it often with our behavioral health clients, how big of a need it is. So, you know, it's just one of those things where there's a big unknown for them next year, and it's it's quite the big burden. Yeah. Go ahead, Paul. Well, we telegraphed this at the beginning of the year when uh, the final rule came out at the end of uh, 2021. They basically said for 2022, it's going to be, you know, the, you know, the whoever documents more of the history exam or medical decision making or time. And then in 2023, it was going to be a question of all time, you know, so that kind of telegraphed that if you're not thinking about who is spending more time with the patient in current state, it's probably a good idea to start thinking about that because you can write all of the you know, I, I have a lot of questions, uh, you know, as the uh, person at NamUs who handles the Ask the Auditor Forum, uh, I get a lot of questions about the perfect language that will immediately solve the split-shared uh, question. And what you quickly realize is there's no such thing, uh, you know, but you can get a heck of a lot closer focusing on who spent more time with that patient, you know. 25 minutes versus 20 minutes or whatever it is, then you do 
by trying to slice and dice the history, slice and dice the examination, you know, who did more exam elements, who did more history elements, who documented the medical decision making, who came behind the NP, the doctor, you know, trying to make a determination as to who really made the plan of care, uh, you know, just, you know, as to Stephanie's point, if you're saying, yeah, I agree with the plan of care, it's like, then what were you doing? You know, you know, so, yeah, you know, that, so that brings me, right, we did talk about this, Um at the end of last year, the beginning of 2022. And it brings me to the part where the statute and, and the guidance from CMS is written as such that it's the person who has performed greater than 50% of the overall visit, right? And, you know, there's two things in there. It's whoever performed the greater of the 50% of the visit and the substantial portion of the record, right? And to your point, Paul, you know, substantial is a subjective term, right? Because if, if, if I write two sentences in a note, but my two sentences clearly set, you know, the treatment plan, you know, the, the follow-ups, the diagnostics, whatever it is that's needed for the patient, and then you have this other individual who basically documented four pages of information, but it said nothing. Or it was EMR template generated. Yeah. Or it's copied from the previous day's note. In well, the, in the don't case forget, of clinical plagiarism is a big yeah. problem. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, that's, that's the problem with the way that these guidelines are being written or these statutes are being updated, right? Um, because this is in the Program Integrity Manual. Um, for me, I, your, your group, Stephanie, is not the only one dealing with this, but they may be one of the only few who recognize the problem that they have coming down the pike. And I think you're gonna see a lot of practices, you know, starting to figure out we can't afford to continue to staff these hospitals. We can't continue down the road that we're going. And here's the problem that I have. When there was an open comment period on all of this stuff about split shared services, where were the comments? Mm -hmm. That's, That's what the, the physician problem. asked. Yeah, the physician <laughs> asked um, when this all happened and why they didn't have a say. So we talked about that as well. well it's long I, gone. I, I think a lot of it has to do with just, uh, you know, getting too comfortable with the way things were. And then just reading a generic comment in a proposed rule saying, well, ah, we got this, you know, and then suddenly it's January 1st, 2022, and you haven't got this, you know. And, you know, if you haven't, if you don't have it now, January 1st, 2023 is going to roll around. And it's going to change yet again because you've been trying to fit the standard of substantial portion uh, to that's Sean's right. point. Where that's right, and <laughs> that's like that's going to be the problem right there. And yeah. and that term substantive, substantial, very subjective. And you know, there's a lot of physicians who are going to be highly upset because their compensation is tied to these services, 
but they have a split shared service with a non-physician practitioner who now is going to get all the credit for this, which means yeah. the work RVUs won't be going to the physician because they did not provide the substantial portion of the encounter, yeah. greater and, than 50%. Yeah. And the practice RVUs per encounter go down 20% because it goes to the NP. Yeah. yeah, spot on. All right, so let's let's jump to our last topic. And I think we're going to stay with behavioral health, if I'm not mistaken, right? So, Stephanie, you just concluded an audit um, for behavioral health for a very large group. And you had some interesting findings. Let's talk about those because I know we have behavioral health folks that listen to us. So let's talk about what was not being substantiated in the medical record. Yeah. So the first, I think, you know, can can um, be specific to a lot of specialties, but uh, there definitely were levels of service that were not supported. And I actually find sometimes in behavioral health providers tend to undercode and not give themselves credit for the services that they're actually rendering. Um, especially when it comes to established patients, for example, you know, when you have at least two stable conditions and you're managing different medications for those conditions, you have a level four service. But sometimes I'll be asked, you know, um, that visit took me 10, 15 minutes, that patient's doing really well. I've known them for over a year. The visit didn't take very long. I didn't think I could do that. So the first thing with just the ENM in general is to remember that it's decision making or time. Um, you know, give yourself credit there. Uh, the other area I found interesting, I actually found with two of my behavioral health clients was the addition of 90833, which is psychotherapy on the same day as an E&M service. So with one practice, I was seeing that they were adding it a lot with their new patient E&M services. And then another practice was adding it for follow-up visits as well. And the thing that was interesting with both and I don't know where this is coming from. It must be out there in the industry somewhere for two practices in completely different states to be doing this. But they thought that they could bill psychotherapy because they are educating the patient on the medication that they're prescribing during the visit. So it's important to remember that that education is tied to the fact that you're prescribing the med. You know, that is a part of your evaluation and management. Um, you know, on top of that, too, there are situations where psychotherapy is supported based on the scenario, but then the documentation becomes very confusing because they kind of lump it all into the assessment and plan. So if you truly have therapy that's being rendered, the note still needs to show what it's about, um, the methods that are being used during the session, an overview about that session, and then typically, you know, the diagnosis and, and future plans as well for that therapy going forward. But you have to be able to carve it out. It cannot just be lumped into the HPI or lumped into the assessment and plan. Right. Paul, and I know you, you're seeing something on a parallel to this in other specialties is it is it tied to procedures what is it tied to well um similar to what uh, stephanie was seeing uh 
I just completed a, a portion of a practice where they have a psychotherapy component. They have a, uh, uh, I think it was a master's level psychotherapist on staff. They were billing psychotherapy, but the issue with their notes is that they're able to populate a code within the notes for psychotherapy that, sh that has a time range within that code. But that's the only place where you see a time range anywhere in the documentation. And it's not up to just punching a code into the documentation saying, look, 40 minutes. Now, you have to document how long you know, all of your findings took in order to perform that psychotherapy service. This should be the easiest thing in the world. This should have been mastered years ago, but it's, you know, with electronic medical records being the way they are, you'd be surprised how many people miss it. Uh, another thing that I want to bring to uh, bear is that, uh, you know, Stephanie, you talked about new patients and how, uh, you know, this comes into play with, uh, a, you know, a new patient E&M, you know, for uh, all of the drug management and everything else. When you know, it, you know, how much of it is a new E&M versus how much of it? And you know, the only way I know this is because I have inside information because I'm married to a master's level psychotherapist. Uh, how much of that information is really the intake for that patient into a psychotherapy plan of care? Is it actually a nine oh seven nine one? You know, where uh, so, you know, it, it, there are many different components to bringing a new patient into a behavioral health practice. It could be the therapist who's going to be seeing that patient on a regular basis who's not a psychotherapist, writing down that plan of care, putting everything in writing for a psychotherapist to then take it from there and then, uh, you know, okay that plan of care with regard to uh, all of their drug regimens and how they're going to attempt to keep that patient stable from a psychiatric uh, basis uh, pharmacologically. And then <clears throat> many times we're not seeing that psychiatrist in most uh, structured environments seeing that patient for psychotherapy, that psychotherapy is being passed off to master's level people who are actually performing the psychotherapy service. So I would argue that maybe you're, maybe in, for a new patient visit, you should be seeing a 90791, which sets the table for psychotherapy. And then from a psychotherapist, you should be seeing that E&M service that basically states this is what your drug regimen is going to be. I've reviewed the, I've reviewed the intake as documented by provider X. This is going to be how this patient is treated pharmacologically. And you have a 90791 here, as well as a, uh, as well as a, uh, an E&M service. I mean, it, you know, it would be strange to have immediate psychotherapy be performed on the day of the intake. I mean, you're basically putting together a plan of care for that patient. And again, wouldn't know this if I hadn't been living with a psychotherapist for 20 years, but that tends to be, that tends to be the workflow. And you have to think of it from that point of view. 
Well, and I think some of the issue there is that a lot of the practices that I've been working with are staffing in a way that the physicians or nurse practitioners are the one who are doing all the medication management. And then they have licensed social workers and therapists who are doing the therapy. So when they have a new patient, they're looking to account for all aspects. They're looking to get the initial evaluation with the therapist. They're looking to get the initial medication management with the other practitioners. So it becomes messy in that way too. Uh, another thing I would point out is that, uh, and I know this from having worked with a uh, community-based uh, program where you're dealing with uh, substance abuse as well, is how that program is paid. Uh, when you're dealing with, say, residential treatment, chances are very good that depending on who the payer is, you can't bill for that individual therapy session. It's basically going to be reimbursed as a per diem in a residential uh, setting. So uh, when you get to that point, you know, you could have the greatest documentation in the world, but uh, it could be that the contract with whatever payer pays you for residential services is not reimbursing you for those individual services. And, uh, you know, residential treatment really gets clocked for that because it's, you know, there, there is a continuum of care within residential treatment that is much more intensive than, say, a patient showing up for a psychotherapy session on an outpatient basis and just being reimbursed for that. Uh, and there is a lot of uh, financial loss going on on the facility side when you're dealing with residential treatment because they're not getting paid for those professional services individually. Mm -hmm. These are all great points. And I hope these are things that our listeners are going to listen to very carefully and make sure you understand what Stephanie and Scott, I mean, uh, Stephanie and Paul, sorry, Paul, what Stephanie and Paul are uh, putting out there as best practices, things to keep in mind, so that you're not making some of the same mistakes that other behavioral health providers are making. And this isn't just limited to one or two groups. We audit lots of behavioral health. So we're seeing patterns and trends and things that are going on all the time. So again, internally, conduct your own audits. If you don't have the staff to do that, reach out. We're always here, happy to help in any way, shape, or form that we can. All right, that's gonna bring us to the end of this compliance roundtable for this week. I wanna thank again, Two of my favorite people, Stephanie Allard and Paul Spencer. Thank you both for being on the program this week. Um, we we had a, a, a little video uh, uh, snafu. Um, so those of you that uh, caught it, hey, it is what it is, right? It's kind of, summertime. <laughs> yes, it's summertime at home. Yeah. I think I think of it as uh, Alfred Hitchcock walking out of the bank during Psycho. You know, there's always going to be that Alfred Hitchcock walk on in every film. You know, so that's, yeah, that's maybe right. we, maybe we can integrate it in future episodes as well. And for those of you, and for those of you who didn't catch the video version of this, um, it was Paul in a bikini. So, um, yeah. you know. 
it is yeah. what it is. No. And there's there's not a person on earth who really wants to see that. So uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. Thank you, audio only. Yeah. Yes. All right. <laughs> Listen. Thank you both for being here. I can't wait until we have you uh, back on uh, in another week or two for the next compliance roundtable. Uh, and to each and every single one of you who tunes in, logs on, and hangs out with us each and every single week, thank you all so much. Again, I hope uh, uh, that the audio from my end was clear enough uh, for those of you who are listening on your favorite podcast platform. Uh, again, I'm coming to you from Detroit, Michigan in a hotel room, so we don't have the professional setup uh, like we have in our studio. But again, we didn't want to miss an opportunity to bring you great content. So with that said, until next time, be good to yourself, but more importantly, be good to each other. Y'all take care.